Well, welcome, welcome, welcome uh, to Vineyard City Church. Again, for those who uh, we already know, we're blessed to see you with us here again and to get to know you better today. For those who are new, a special welcome to you. And uh, certainly we hope that you'll come forward uh, at the end of each service. We'll have people up here uh, to pray with you, but also just to connect with you. If you'd like to just get to know Sean and I or anybody else, uh, by all means, after the service, please come forward. We'd love to connect uh, and pray for you here on your first visit. Um, we're in a, I guess we're in our sixth week now. This will be the, the final uh, sort of individual sermon in a series um, based in Matthew uh, 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus is teaching about the narrow way. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Uh, that there are kind of two ways before us in life, figuratively speaking. There's this wide road that is so broad that you could just end up on it accidentally and not even know you're there. And there's this gate at the end of the road that, that just anybody could walk through. It's very easy to get down there. But that path and that gate lead to destruction. And there's this other path, this path that Jesus calls us to. It's not as easy to find your way onto. It's a narrower path, and the gate is smaller. Uh, it's more challenging to walk this path, but this is the path that leads to life. That's been kind of the main message of this series. And we've been looking at this uh, dynamic uh, through the lens of three different kind of settings in our life. Um, there's kind of our, let's just, hold on a second here. So just to refresh everybody on the verse itself, uh, this is again out of Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. As we've kind of explored this passage and, and talked a bit about what that might mean for us, uh, we've looked at three different settings uh, in our life, uh, represented by this fantastic high-resolution graphic. Um, basically, the idea that we have an upward journey. This is our one-on-one -on -one with the Lord. This is uh, our intimate devotional relationship with God. It's the place of prayer and worship and study of his word and stillness, like we practice together today, and just listening to the Lord. It's the relational place between us and God. There's a way to go about this that represents the narrow path in that upward journey. And then next we have this inward journey, which is a congressional life. It's, it's the ecclesial life. It's the place where we all gather together in the safety and the fellowship of our church. There are certain securities here. We're sort of gathering together with a common goal and a vision to be a people devoted to the person and the purposes of Jesus Christ. There's safety, there's buy-in in this setting. Uh, but it affords us the opportunity to do the one another's. Uh, as Sean was talking about, so many of the commandments and teachings of Jesus come in the form of do certain things unto one another. Well, right away, you have to be with one another in order to do towards one another, to love one another, to be patient with one another, to bear one another's burdens. You've got to be with one another. That inward journey is essential. And we develop there in a way that we don't individually on our own. We get challenged in that place. There's some friction in that place. And we have to grow uh, and be flexible and be gracious with one another in ways that just aren't necessary when we're by ourselves. So that's an important context for our growth. Today we're going to talk about the third aspect of this walk, the outward journey, where all that development and that formation pays out uh, with the kind of fruit that God has always desired uh, from his people. But before we get started into all that, let's pray. So Father God, we thank you for uh, the privilege uh, of this place, God, just to have a place devoted to our worship of you, uh, God, the convenience, uh, the quiet of it. When it's rainy, we have shelter here together. Um, 
it's, it offers us more options. Downstairs right now, we have wonderful members of our congregation caring for our children, Lord. And all of this is a part of the facility, the place uh, that you have uh, provided for us. We pray for your blessing on the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, that has shared this space with us so graciously, God. Now, Lord, we pray that you'd open our ears uh, and our hearts and our minds to receive what you would teach us. God, I have a message before me, Lord, but ultimately the most important thing is that we hear you today. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us, that you would highlight in our hearts those things that you really want to draw our attention to, make us mindful, help us to discern your voice in all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last Sunday, uh, you may have caught a hint about where we would be grounding uh, this passage today. If you were listening to Sean, you might have heard him uh, talk about the Great Commission. There's a moment uh, just before uh, the risen Christ ascends to be at the right hand of the Father in heaven after his death and resurrection when he turns to the disciples and describes for them the work that the church will be engaged in from that moment forward. We call this moment the Great Commission. And we can uh, find it here in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. I'll just read it for you here briefly. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there it is. What all of this journey with Jesus and his disciples has been driving for, what the formation and the growth and the teaching has been culminating in. There's always purpose to what God is doing. There's purpose to the gifts and the formation and the provision. And the purpose almost always extends beyond ourselves. It is good news that when we personally have a need, the Lord is there to provide for us. But it's not just for our comfort. It's not just so that life is more convenient. For us, God is always investing in us because we intersect with the lives of many other people. We walk and we work and we worship and we play and we shop in this city. And the way we are as people has an effect on all of the people that we encounter. So every investment on God's part, everything he's shaping and forming within our hearts has a fruit attached to it for someone other than ourselves. And here Jesus has been pouring out into his disciples for years and now he turns them outward and says, go. Now, into the world and continue the ministry that I have been teaching you. Notice the language of the Great Commission. First of all, the word go, not stay, not hide, not go into seclusion until I come back. At some point, you'll hear me coming, thundering and horns and all kinds of stuff. No, the call is to now go. They're called to carry on Jesus' work on earth. Um, there's a passage in John that's beautiful for some of the mission and the purpose uh, of Jesus on this earth out of uh, John 8, uh, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever are my disciples, will not walk in dar darkness, but they will have the light of life. Jesus' disciples are called to carry that same light into the world with them for the sake of the world, not just for themselves. Matthew 5, 14 has some very similar sounding language, but it's pointed differently now. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't hide. Don't hide away from the world, uh, nor do the people that light a lamp and put it under a basket, or put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so that it can give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. There's a purpose to all of this formation, all this discipleship, all this journey with Jesus. There's a moment when he turns us outward to the world and says, now go and be a blessing to them. Jesus lifts us up, shaping and forming us into a holy people, set apart for his purposes, so that we can go into the world and carry his love, his provision, and his spirit to those in need. Notice next the scale and the reach of the Great Commission. All nations, a light to the whole world. This worldwide vision isn't a new idea for God. He has this purpose and this global mission in mind even back in the times of Abraham. We find that language in the covenant that he made with Abraham and Sarah and his promises about the purpose of that covenant. You can find that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I'll read it to you now. This is God speaking to Abraham about his descendants and his house and, and his people that he's raising up through him and Sarah. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's a discipleship methodology that's used by Sean for sure and many in the vineyard. And it goes a little bit like this. Sean, correct me if I'm missing critical steps here, but I will do the thing and you watch me do that thing. And then I'll do it and you help me do that work. Then you do the thing and I'll help you. And then you take over and I'll watch. I'll be with you, I'll be present, but now it's your work. To my eye, there's something of that dynamic, that discipleship model in the covenant night language. I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. And now you go and be a blessing to all peoples on the earth. You go out and you carry that blessing for the sake of others. Notice lastly here, the ongoing commitment from Jesus to be with us. I am with you always, he says, and be sure of this. I am with you even to the end of the age. This isn't a new promise or a new idea either. It has always been God's desire to dwell with us, to live with us, to work with us. Even back in the garden, in the creation story, before sin entered the world, and we kind of moved on to plan B, uh, as God has been working to restore us in creation back to himself ever since. In that beautiful, pristine vision, that, that plan A model of creation, uh, God creates a beautiful place and places humanity in it and then dwells with them in that place. Genesis talks about him walking in the garden with them in the cool of the evening. It has been God's desire to be with us. His covenant with Abraham is to be with him. And Jesus' promise in the Great Commission is to be with us to the end of the age. The Great Commission just reiterates and renews what God has wanted from his people all along. Now, Truth be told, though, it's kind of a massive job. It's kind of heavy, if you think about it. It might even be a little bit intimidating. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Anybody know off the top of their head how many nations there are in the world? This would be great trivia. I don't know either. I have not visited all the nations. I don't know that it's possible that I will visit all the nations. I don't know if anybody would raise their hand and say they've been to all the nations. That's a pretty tall order. Jesus himself in the incarnation didn't really leave Israel. He didn't visit all the nations in those 30 plus years that he walked before he was crucified. What's up with that call? That's pretty massive. And teach them to obey his commands. Obey him. 
Like that's a big, like who wants to go up to somebody and present a divine God they can't see and then immediately start demanding that they obey him in all things? That's pretty intimidating. I'm still trying to obey him in all things just myself. I don't know that I feel prepared to go to all the nations of the world and instruct them to obey Jesus as well. Well, thankfully, no one person is called upon to do all these things. The Great Commission is given to the church as a whole. It is the work of millions and billions. It is the work of countless generations spread apart the church globally. So then, what we might ask is, is required of the individual in this call, in this Great Commission. What is the individual's calling to go out into the world and into our city? What does it look like to do the possible? If you remember, if you were here for our Sunday on holiness, the narrow way and the connection that holiness and being set apart has to do with that narrow way, we talked about doing the possible. I'll refresh us just a little bit on this. I was referring to some of the Marvel superheroes of the Bible. A lot of them show up in the Old Testament who seem to have done quite remarkable things. But if you zoom in and really pay attention to what they did or what God asked of them, it's remarkable how simple and straightforward some of these things are. Moses does a ton of this stuff. But if you look at what God actually asks of Moses, here God, this is this moment where he's going to go in front of Pharaoh and his wizards and turn a walking stick into snakes, which is not something I've learned to do yet. They don't teach you that at seminary. But this is the actual instruction given to him. You are to say to Aaron, so you don't even have to do this, Moses, just say this to Aaron. Take your staff and throw it in front of Pharaoh. That's it. If I passed out staffs to everybody in the room, I'm pretty sure we could all throw them into the aisle. That was the commandment. That was the possible. And it was transformed into a serpent, but Moses and Aaron didn't have to come up with that. God did the impossible thing. Another moment here, as the sea is being divided before God's people, if you read closely, it just says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. I'm certain that all of us could stretch out our hands over a body of water in obedience to the Lord. Now, the call there to be faithful in the face of an army bearing down on you and all of your people watching you and all you do is this, like that's not, you know, that's not an unintimidating thing, but it's a possible thing. And all that night, the word says, the Lord pushed back the sea. Moses didn't push the sea back. He just reached out his hand in faith. God consistently asks the possible of us. And there's a beautiful Mother Teresa quote on this that I absolutely love that I think perfectly illustrates the call for the individual as they are headed out into the city. She was, she was uh, talking to somebody about the overwhelming uh, sense of hunger in the world and how can any one of us hope to solve that? And her response was, well, if you can't feed 100 people, feed one. If that's the possible, feed the one person. Do the thing that you can do. I absolutely love that quote from her. That's the call on us. The Great Commission... Uh, boiled down to the individual journey is what has God put in your hands? What has he made you able to do? And what does it look like to step out into the world, having benefited from that formation that happens in the inward journey of community and the devotional life we have upward with God and do what is possible in in the lives of the people around you? But what's a good example from scripture specifically about going out into the city and the world and doing these possible things? I was reading through some of the book of James recently uh, as James was writing to uh, portions of Israel, portions of the Jews that had been kind of scattered out. The 12 tribes had been scattered out and he's writing to them and he's talking about these kind of uh, cornerstone essential aspects of this faith following Jesus now. Uh, And he talks about religiosity. Now, what's interesting to me 
uh, is that most of the time when we encounter the language of religiousness, it's in a negative light. God has, Jesus has a lot to say about religious leaders, and it's not particularly flattering. There's a lot of language cautioning people around the religions of the world. Um, but, uh, but we have a moment here where there's a positive word. There's a positive word given uh, about religion here. And um, James calls out a few of the things that are great for religion. Uh, what defines good religion as he's establishing these foundations. Just out of curiosity, would anyone venture a guess? Um, just like guess two things. What is essential to good religion? What, what would be two examples of things that God would find to represent good religion? Just doable things. Anybody? Loving others. I love that. That's actually a very good one. Anybody? Oh, you cheated. You cheated. Well, now I'm just going to skip the whole section. So anyway... What James says is remarkable to me, because if I sat down with a group of my fellow seminarians, I would get stuff about deep theological studies and discourse and ancient languages and the sacraments and all kinds of stuff that's very good and important for our journey. I promise you I would not necessarily have gotten this answer as we started our journey at seminary. So out of James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's a little bit of a shocker. Be with the widows and be with the or orphans. This is good religion, folks. Oh, there's a translation that says, visit the orphans and visit the widows. It reminded me of a story um, of a friend of mine, doctoral student, brilliant woman from Africa named Chi. I even love her name. Uh, that said one of the most shocking cultural adjustments she had to make when she came to seminary was that Americans are apparently content to leave one another alone in their suffering and their misery. She could not understand this dynamic in our culture. She said in her village, if it's discovered that somebody is sick or suffering or working through something hard, without asking permission, people will just start showing up at their house. And they'll just invite themselves in. And they'll sit down in your living room and they'll work on whatever they need to work on, but they will not let you be alone in your suffering. They will visit you. That's more than just being aware that you're hurting. That's more than just being cognizant that some people in the city are in pain right now. A visitation. I mean, think about all the best visitations. Visiting grandma or grandpa. That's, you're moving into their space and you're being with them. And you're, you're making room for them in your day. And they're making room for you. Visit the orphan and visit the widow. This is good religion. And it's consistent, man. This orphan and widow stuff is big stuff. All the way through the Old Testament and the New. I'll just read a few quick. Out of Exodus. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Out of Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the orphan, plead the widow's case. Out of Psalms 146, the Lord watches over the travelers. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This business of caring for those who are vulnerable, who are less able to provide for themselves. Understand also that culturally, the widow would not have had much of a capacity to provide for herself. The men ran everything, the men owned everything. If you found yourself without your husband, and if you had no children, you were in trouble as a woman in that culture. And good religion in the eyes of God is to see that moment happen and surround that person and be with them and pour out from the provision that the Lord has given you. That's the possible. That's the going out into your community and in your city. You get the impression sometimes that certain things weigh heavily on God's hearts. All of these commandments, though, share in common the fact that they ask the possible of us. 
Visit and be with. Invest in those whose society can so often overlook or avoid. Look for those who are not easily seen. You can't know by looking at a person whether they have parents. You don't know by looking at a man or a woman if they have lost their spouse. You have to be proactive about this. You have to go to them and find out their story. It's not just going to be a passive ordeal. Be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of others who have a need. Go out into the city and do the possible. Now let's go back to James for a moment. Sometimes the commandments that come in, the form, in this form come in the form of a do not. Uh, and those do not commandments can seem more difficult than the do's. They can feel oppressive. They can rub us the wrong way. And I realize that at this point you're looking at that burger and you're wondering what in the world is Todd doing here? Well, there's a story here about a do not. Uh, some of you who know me will know this journey, uh, but I've been trying for some years now to get my weight under control. Um, at my heaviest, I was uh, about 375 pounds. Uh, working my way towards 400. Uh, when I left for seminary uh, five years ago, I had started to make headway on that. I was about 340 at that point. Uh, and today, praise the Lord, I'm at 298. I haven't been under 300 since high school, probably. Uh, but I got to know a trainer, a dear brother. Uh, him and his wife ran the physical fitness program at the seminary, which is a big deal at Asbury. Stewardship of the body is an essential thing in that community. And I remember we were working out one day, and he made this brilliant <laughs> obvious observation that I just didn't thought much about. He said, Todd, you can eat 1,000 calories worth of cheeseburgers, and then you can run on this treadmill for an hour and a half to burn it all off. Or you can just not eat the 1,000 calories worth of cheeseburgers. Wouldn't that be easier? You don't actually have to do anything to do that. You just have to not do something. And you spare yourself all the anguish and anxiety of an hour and a half on this treadmill. In that way, I think the do nots in the commandments can be the easiest of all. They ask nothing of us. We just have to not do some things. We have to not kill each other <laughs> in our anger. We have to not lie and deceive one another. We just have to choose not to covet those things that belong to other people. You're going to be in the world, but don't be polluted by the world. That's the do not here. Any thoughts or examples on what being polluted by the world might look like? How does the world pollute us, corrupt us? Materialism? Fault the world follows you around? Oh, people? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Well, I'll tell you one thing I can think of that connects to the widow and the orphan. Indifference. Indifference is a corruption of the human heart. If you watch children, toddlers, I'm not a father, but I've had many nephews and a, and a lovely niece who I love so much. And as I have observed children... I've observed that children naturally um, notice one another when they're in distress. They'll naturally turn. Some of them will instinctively move towards one another to console one another. And they do all of this without the benefit of a degree in counseling or any training in crisis management. It is just in the nature of a child to notice someone in pain and to try to do something about it. Indifference is learned. We have to learn to not care. We have to become a people who ignore. That's one of the ways that the world corrupts us. The world works so hard to convince us that the good life, the best life, is when we live that life for ourselves alone. My way, my truth, my strength, my comfort, me. Don't be corrupted by the world. Resist the world's attempt to distort your heart. Don't be polluted in that way. Don't eat the $1,000 worth of cheeseburgers. 
I thought I'd uh, just ask a brother forward here briefly to give us an example of how he has walked this out. Um, it's, it's, it, it, Joe, please come forward. Uh, there's a ministry that's being operated out of our very congregation that is a profound example of just doing the possible in a way that might seem so simple it doesn't even occur uh, to us. Uh, Joe, if you'd just take a couple minutes and tell us a little bit about your story. You probably want a microphone for that endeavor. Well, there was a microphone here and it got moved. Oh, here we go. Tell us a little bit about Live, Laugh, Love Laundry and how that came to be. Good morning, everybody. Um, well, I, I was looking at the quote by Mother Teresa, and uh, it reminded me of how we got started with our ministry. Um, I moved here about six and a half years ago, a relatively brand new believer. I didn't know what God wanted me to do or where, what I was supposed to do, or where I was supposed to go. A little bit intimidated. So um, started hanging out by Shopco and Rayleigh's on Lake Boulevard. And there was quite a homeless pop population in that area at the time. So I would just like walk up to somebody and t start talking to them and ask them if I could buy them a hamburger or a cheeseburger or a chicken sandwich, whatever, McDonald's right across the street. So at the time they had a dollar menu, so it didn't really cost me a whole lot. Um, now I think you can get some, you can get two of something for like three dollars. So um, I don't get out as much as I used to, but a few weeks back I did that. And um, so, and I like the idea of the two because then I get to sit and eat with the person and I get to, uh, sometimes they'll, they'll be more open than others and they'll share their story. But that's how the laundry day thing started was I was just doing that and uh, met a few people and asked them if there was anything else that me and my friend who's a street preacher, could do for them. And it was a cold and wet winter, and they said their clothes and their sleeping bags and all were soaking wet and full of mud and so on. Mm -hmm. So we went up to buy Poppy's Pizza, if you know where that's at, on Lake Boulevard. Um, and we chipped in about $20, I think it was like $20 each. And we uh, washed their clothes, and we bought some food for them. And the next month, it was cold and rainy again. And they're like, can we do that again? And can we bring some friends? And so like Mother Teresa said, you don't have to feed 100. You just go out and you feed one. Mm -hmm. So um, the latest thing that's happened, uh, by the way, we'll be there a week from tomorrow at 1072 Lake Boulevard. If anybody wants to come and participate and join with us, I can guarantee you, you'll have a good time and you'll be blessed and you'll hear some stories that will uh, rock your world and probably open up your eyes to a little bit different perspective unless you've already lived on the street uh, then you already know what I'm talking about um, so the latest thing that happened that I want to share is uh, a couple weeks ago a friend of mine um, he's been working at Salvation Army and um, he asked me if I would come and talk to the two majors there and so I did and um, coming up in March we'll have the Salvation Army food truck at Laundry Day cooking to order uh, for people. So that takes a big wow. weight off of, um, off of our shoulders because that's been one of the things that's been inconsistent about Laundry Day is figuring out who's gonna cook, where I'm gonna get the food, all that kind of thing. So I'm grateful for that. Um, and I was talking with Todd um, before the service this morning and I told him a short story. There's, there's so many stories that, um, 
that I could tell and, uh, about what takes place at Laundry Day and, and uh, how the Holy Spirit just does his thing because we've said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story that I was talking with Todd about this morning was about this young lady who started coming to Laundry Day uh, shortly after we started, and she came for about three or four years, and uh, she's living on the streets, and um, first couple times that she came and she left, uh, I said, God bless you, see you later, good to see you type of thing, and I noticed that when I said God bless you, she cringed, she was, you know, her whole body language um, was not accepting. I'm guessing she'd been hurt or broken or something by somebody uh, who professed to be um, a follower of Jesus. I, I really don't know. I didn't get into it that deeply with her. But I knew that it was time to back off. So when uh, I would see her from then on, I would just say, hey, thanks for coming. You know, have a great day. Uh, still the same friendliness, but um, no mention of God. And so after about three or four years of coming, um, a couple of our volunteers talked to her separately. Neither one knew that the other had, and neither one knew what I knew. And um, they both came to me, and they're like, hey, we were talking to Michaela, and um, she surrendered her life to Jesus. And I was like, you're talking to who? You know? Um, And so I was just like... I think, you know, the whole thing about what St. Francis of Assisi said, um, spread the gospel wherever you go, and if necessary, use words, you know. We don't have to say anything about Jesus. We just have to be him with skin and love on people, and people will get curious, and hopefully they will um, over, and we don't always see the fruit, right? Sometimes we just plant the seed or water it or um, pull the weeds or whatever. But, um, but God's at work, and he's, he honors what we do. I could have never thought of any of this, honestly. You know, it, it's beyond my comprehension to um, figure out how to... Um, we average probably 50 people that we feed each laundry day, and uh, we probably spend six or $700 in quarters. Um, there's uh, Health and Human Services who comes and provi- helps provide people with support services and housing. There's our buddy Skippy that comes and gives away hygienic products and um, dry goods. Um, there's prayer team. There, I mean, it's like sometimes I just stand back and I'm like, how did this all happen? <laughs> you know. So anyway, um, you're welcome to participate. It, it really is uh, amazing. Uh, the people that serve with us and, and the team that serves with us and anybody's welcome to be a part of it. If you know somebody that can use um, the encouragement and the dignity that comes from having some clean clothes and a, and a hot meal and some people that um, support you and are on your side, um, then send them our way. We'll be happy to, happy to help in any way we can. Thanks, brother. Thank you, my friend. All right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All righty. Well, with that, we're going to switch gears here um, to one of the most beautiful sacraments in our tradition. Um, Before his death and resurrection, Jesus had one last meal. A whole lot of good stuff happens around the dinner table with Jesus. Um, And he 
took a piece of bread and he took some wine, which were commonly available to people rich and poor, fruit and bread. Uh, and he spoke to them and said, this bread is my body, which is going to be broken for you. And this, this wine is my blood, which is going to be shed for you. And he called us to partake of those elements together as a community in remembrance of him, but also uh, as a divine mystery. We believe the presence of God is with us in those elements and in this communal act uh, as we remind ourselves that we don't come to church for the pastor. We don't come to church for a light show. We come to church to gather around the communion table, to gather around Christ, our King. Uh, and this sacrament kind of draws us to that place together. So if you're a follower of Jesus or would like to start being a follower of Jesus today, you're welcome here. The way we do this is we come down the center aisle together. We'll take our elements, take the cracker, dip it in the wine, and hang on to it. We'll go back to our seats around the outside to avoid collisions. And then once everybody has some, we'll partake together as a family. So please come forward. All right, if you'd all stand with me here, we'll pray over this communion, and then I'll bless us as we go out. Thank you, Lord, for how far you have been willing to go for us. It is almost inconceivable, Lord, that a perfect and righteous and sinless God would lay down his life for our sake. God, help us to hold that, the truth and the magnitude of that love, your mission, your purpose towards us and in our hearts and our minds as we go into the city, Father, and show us every opportunity that you would give us to turn into the world, to go out and to pour that same love out on those we encounter, to be patient because you've been patient with us, to be gracious because you've been gracious with us, to forgive because we've been forgiven much, to love because you loved us first, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Out into the city, we used to have a sign over the doors at one of our past locations that said, this way lies the mission field. It's not 9,000 miles away. It's right outside. So keep your eyes open for the people God puts in your path. Look with a grateful heart to all the provision he has given you and ask yourself what he might be asking you to share with others. Bless you all.